This is Chief Robert Conti of the Metropolitan Police Department. The truth is, traffic deaths are up in D.C., but I'm encouraged that we can change this outcome with a quick solution. Anytime you're in a car, buckle up. Seatbelts are lifesavers. Let's make Vision Zero a reality in D.C. because together, our roads can be free of tragedy. D.C. police are enforcing seatbelt laws throughout the city. Click it or tick it. Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This week, we have a guest who helps answer one of the most important questions we face. Why is it so important we protect our democracy? What are the real economic and other consequences we face if democracy fails, and what do we need to do about it? Trigby Olson has worked around the world defending democracy. He's been on the front lines of a lot of these fights, seeing the consequences of autocratic movements. Uh, and how democracies go downhill and can ultimately fail. His seven rules for defeating autocracy are going to be crucial in winning this fight. Uh, Trigby has been uh, an ally of the Lincoln Project and definitely provided me a lot of the insight that made me understand how important the autocracy versus democracy fight is. Trigby, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. It is it is wonderful to be on, and it's it's been Fantastic getting to know you over the last few months. Just an honor. Same here. Same here. So uh, I want to start. You had a, a really amazing thread, I thought, on political risk. And I wanted to, to start there. You know, what does it mean? What does political risk mean? Um, your th- Twitter thread the other day got us all talking about this. Uh, and you tweeted, if we don't get our act together, it's only a matter of time before our credit will become tied to our political dysfunction. So I wanted you to wanted you to talk a little bit about about just sort of what political risk is, and, and, and why it matters. Yeah. So sovereign risk, of course, um, comes in in many ways, and um, I I really hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about the political risk side until I was approached by some people who knew of my work in various autocratic places and knew I had some skills at parachuting in and figuring out pretty fast what's going on in countries. Um, And they asked me to go in, they were going to make a large investment and go in and assess what were the political risks. Um, In this particular case, it was uh, the the perceived risk was a former uh, prime minister potentially coming back into power who had been quite corrupt. Ultimately, we ended up identifying that that wasn't the risk. Crime was the real risk. But um, political risk ultimately starts with identifying what things can happen in a country that could impact your business, then understanding the likelihood for such impact to happen. What would the implications be? Are they going to be serious? Are they going to be minor to to the business? And then how to stop that risk from occurring? And I think if we look at what's going on in the United States today, you know, there is a level of political risk. And Americans don't think about that because we've always been the place that people go, where people go to escape political risk. It's why people from Latin America buy property in Miami or, you know, people from around the world buy places in New York or wherever, um, because we've always been the safe haven. That's now been called into question. And are you seeing that? I mean, as somebody who works a lot outside of the U.S., are you seeing 
those kinds of questions raised more and more in, in foreign capitals or in the business community? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, you know, the gold standard for looking at governance and how countries compare um, in terms of each other and in terms of over time, whether they're democratic all the way to autocratic, would be the Economist Intelligence Unit's Global Democracy Survey. And one of the points I made in the tweet, um, and I shared a fair amount of graphs from a from a PowerPoint that I do, um, is that our democracy has actually moved, at least according to the Economist Intelligence Unit, from a fully functioning democracy to one that's a flawed democracy. And our peers that we imagine, uh, which would be places like you know the UK, Canada, Germany, Japan, uh, they're no longer our democratic peers. Our democratic peers are places like South Korea, Slovakia, places where their democracy is more managed, if you will, more illiberal. Um, obviously, from an economic standpoint, um, and the Economist identifies this, you know, they have subcategories. The two main ones that they identify where we've been falling are first functioning of government. And that coincides almost every time with divided government. Um, and I like to think, you know, for people who wonder about the economic impact, if we look back to the Tea Party election of 2010, uh, back when you and I were on opposite sides in all likelihood, yeah. you know, Republicans took over. And Ted Cruz and Eric Cantor decided that they were going to hold Obamacare hostage over raising the debt ceiling. Um, and we technically defaulted on our debt. They didn't raise the debt ceiling over a domestic political fight, and our credit rating was lowered for the first time in history. If you look at what happened on 1-6, or even throughout the summer of 2020, people you know, on my former side of the aisle would probably say, well, this is just a bunch of Europeans bagging on us. But in reality, you don't see Canadians chant lock him up or lock her up to political opponents. You don't see people in the UK storming the houses of parliament to overturn legitimate elections. You don't see people in Japan having so little faith in the police in a major city that they go and feel compelled to burn a police precinct because they feel like they have no other recourse. Um, that is a democracy that's starting to fall apart. And the Economist highlights that. So, with this, uh, you know, the, the sort of the authoritarian movement um, that you know the Trump fuels. That's um, clear, you know, all the, the voter suppression, everything else that's, that, that 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 they've been doing. You know, not even you know voting against even investigating what happened on January six. Where does the the U.S. stand right now? You know, relative. Uh, you already talked a little bit about how we're we're now listed as a flawed democracy. Is that what you what you were saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does that affect? I mean, it, it it seems to me like the country's not really awake to the threat of a, what this continuing growing authoritarian movement would mean economically. I mean, in terms of um, you know their bottom line. I mean, again, regardless of what party you're in or any of that that stuff. Can you get into that a little bit? What what are the the impacts? Sure. I mean, obviously, your credit rating, as you know, we as individuals all have credit scores, right? And there's talk 
about that. And if your credit score goes down, you're going to pay a higher interest rate if it goes below a certain threshold for your home mortgage or your car payment, whatever you borrow money for. The cost of borrowing money, if your risk of not paying it back for some reason becomes greater. The same is true with governments. So if, you know, and Fitch, which is one of the major rating agencies just yesterday came out or in the last few days came out and suggested that political risk is something that really has to be looked at in the US. Well, how does that impact your average person? Well, if political risk cause moves in the spread and the amount of risk that there is for people buying US treasuries, for example, that's going to move through the market and people are gonna end up paying higher mortgage rates. People are gonna end up paying more for interest in general. And that doesn't even get into you know, some of the impact that that has on both on the national debt, because a lot right. of government debt is short term, but also on the budget deficit, because already, I, I don't know what the exact percentage is. Is it a third? Is it half? You know, Some large percentage of the US federal budget every year is now interest on the national debt. That will increase if that spread increases due to the fact that people have less confidence that something could happen in the United States that makes it less safe of a place to invest. So the more this authoritarian movement grows uh, and the more risk that causes, the more risk, the more we slide further down, even economically. And wh- why wouldn't or, or what will it take for corporate America to get this or why don't they they get the the real threat here to their um it, you know where they're still playing both sides don't we've seen company after company say they weren't going to give to the insurrectionists and then switch and start giving to both sides like it's normal uh, like we're still in normal times and not recognizing um fitch and some of these other uh economic players out there who are starting to raise the alarm bells about where this is all going you know I mean, I just, I think part of it is, and I, and this has been true for myself, right? I, I told you a story once about when I worked around the world with those fighting for democracy in places like Burma or Belarus or Venezuela or wherever, inevitably someone would come up to me and they would say, you're brave to come here and work with us. And I would thank them. And I would inevitably say, which I felt was the truth, that they were really heroes because I got to go home to the United States or to Europe where I was living at the time, Western Europe. Um, And I didn't have to worry about losing my job or being kicked out of school or being beaten by the police or imprisoned or even gunned down in front of the Kremlin like my good friend Boris Nemtsov was for standing up for democracy and against autocracy. And then when I would start presenting, I'd always look out at him and I would think to myself, you know, would I be somebody who would show up at a seminar like this to try and be a part of the difference? Would I go to the barricades if democracy were under threat in America? And it would always pass quick because uh, it's something that we've just taken for granted. And I think on the economic side, corporate America people who invest in the United States, up until 1-6, it was always taken for granted that America's democracy, even if it 
even if the tide of democracy in the United States was receding, you know, to use de Tocqueville's words, it would come back. But I also know uh, once violence like we saw in 1-6 becomes normalized, once changing election laws for partisan advantage under false pretenses of a big lie becomes normalized, um, they become the norm. And so I think, you know, as Reed Galen often says, it's a question of not having enough imagination right. of what could happen. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's normal. I think it's called normalcy bias, where we're all sort of sort of preconditioned to think we'll, we'll snap back to normal, that this is just a temporary thing. And that's even after the, you know, after January 6th, I think people have, uh, are still suffering under that kind of delusion. I think a lot of Washington is, uh, uh, particularly on the, the Democratic side, that there's there's actually somebody you can talk to and negotiate with when that's clearly not the case. You can't negotiate with an authoritarian movement. Uh, it's a zero-sum game. Uh, you know, it, it, yeah, and you can't play. You can't play the win-win upon which democracy is predicated. I mean, the genius of the founding fathers was taking z- governance, which is inevitably zero-sum. You hold power, or I hold power. Somebody holds power. Other people don't. Right? That's zero-sum. But inevitably, the genius of the founding fathers was: we're going to build systems. We're going to build checks and balances. We're going to build a whole schoolhouse rock of things that make this win-win, regular elections. And if one side goes too far, the people will hold them accountable in a, a more perfect union, and there will be a transition. But if one side is zero-sum, you can't play that win-win game. And whether it's because they hope it will come back or they have, you know, they don't believe that it's possible yeah. or they think they can manage it, I mean, I think that's why we have to to work so hard at making sure that uh, any any of these companies there's that still are playing both sides get that they're actually helping to fund an authoritarian movement uh, right now uh, and not a party. But uh, I don't. I think we we've, we've done a little of that that with Toyota, that Lincoln Project did, and and you know we've got other things planned, of course. But uh, it, I think they are going to be a very important. Um, place to kind of like go at, make sure that we call that out. You know, one of the things you, when you were talking about, uh, you know, when you went into these places, uh, I had the same experience. I was a, a bit too, too, one was uh, taking on Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. And, and I was in a, you know, safe house, safely out of the fray. And the same thing where they would come, people would come up and say, you know, you're really brave to be here and help us. And it was like, you're the ones that are going back <laughs> to to your village. And and where at that point, you know, they're literally um, Mugabe, the, the, they, they were, if you had a, a, a opposition poster up on your, uh, your door, uh, you were, you were, your life was in danger. I mean, plenty of people were killed. Uh, and the same thing happened. Uh, when I, I worked briefly uh, in Iraq during the war, t- because they didn't have democracy after 40 years of of Hussein, of Saddam, they 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 didn't know what a what a party was. So I was helping build parties there, and it's the same thing: the bravery, the courage that those people show. And then you know you get back here, 
And there's so much we take for granted. If you haven't been in that environment, if you haven't, uh, I mean, that, that, that it could never happen here, that we would never, uh, our, our democracy won't fail. Uh, it took me a, and talk, it took, you had a big impact on me because I, 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 I was still thinking, hey, there's got to be a two-party solution to this. We've got to be able to reach across the party lines and, and talk sense to each other. Um, and then it just became clear to me that I was seeing it wrong, that this is, and that's what I mean. I think there are a lot of people out there, a lot of voters, a lot of uh, C-suites in corporate America that are stuck in that normalcy bias that they they just, it can't happen here. And that's even after, you know, no, we all would have said January 6th can't happen in this country, and it did. And you know, there's there's more of that around the corner. But this gets to, I, I think, the, the second thing I wanted to talk to you about, your seven rules, because like, what, what does it take to fight um, this movement that Trump is fueling? Um, how, how do you, you take on um, and yeah, I, 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 we're going to put both Twitter link threads uh, for you, you know the political risk thread and the um, seven rules thread in the in our show notes. But um, I wanted you to talk about them uh, and and what are the essential things we need to do. Well, so just to touch on something that you made me think about, you know, as it relates to corporate America, right? So there is there is the whole sovereign risk. Uh, that that impacts interest rates and you know um, finance side for companies. Um, but I think one of the things that isn't talked about that companies need and corporate America needs to understand and why they have to engage to be part of the solution is part of what we have going on is extremism. And extremism has you know, four basic psychological factors. There's cognitive distress that people are feeling that leads them to seek simple answers. They become overconfident in their opinions and ultimately they're intolerant. Um, and those can be around grievances that are real. Um, I'm from Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Um, what happened with George Floyd is something that has been a problem in Hennepin County and Minneapolis for decades a double standard, um, or they can be around things that are imagined, that the election was stolen. Um, and for corporate America, what they have to understand is, you know, surveys show half, roughly half, about 56 to 58% of Republicans, 44% of Democrats now view the other side as enemies. And that's a political risk to corporate America as well. And it's a political risk to corporate America, and I'll just use Walt Disney, Disney Corporation as an example, not because for any other reason than just they're easy. If you are a company today in America and you're, you're Walt Disney and you don't have your people showing up with their Mickey Mouse ears on each day when they show up at work, there's a, a really good chance that they're going to show up with their Black Lives Matter hat or their MAGA hat. And they're going to view those people that they're supposed to work with as enemies. And the crazy part about it is if you look at corporate America, a lot of the icons, right? They are what make America great. Disney is one of the companies that makes America great. People from around the world, here where I am in Lithuania, they want to take their kids to Disneyland, right? It's also true that Disney is a company 
that Walt Disney was one of the first people in Hollywood to hire Asian Americans and African Americans to be animators in the studio. That's part of what makes America great too. Corporate America really needs to be defending the space, but also articulating it better to their employee base, why they help make America great and the fact that part of it is being inclusive. Now to the rules, you know, when you're dealing with zero sum actors, there's certain things that you have to keep in mind. And the first, you know, I have seven rules. The first rule of which is you have to play the game you're in, not the one you wish you were playing, right? Yeah. If you and I are under, you know, you and I are playing a win-win game because we're on team democracy. We may not agree on a lot politically, or we may, but we certainly agree that it's better that Joe and Trigby can battle it out in an election and have another one in two years or four years than it is one of us gets the whole loaf and the other one gets nothing. And so you have to realize you're in that game and that game is zero sum, no matter how much you wish that you were playing the other game. And Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, you know, with what McCarthy did, McCarthy made an ultimate zero-sum move, right? I'm not going to play the game. Yeah. And and I will say, you got to give Nancy Pelosi and Liz Cheney a lot of credit, and we'll talk about that in a different rule. Um, but they got the best of Kevin McCarthy on this one. Yeah, I mean, I think that gets to one of the things that we're all trying to do is to build a pro-democracy coalition. It's got to be a coalition across um across, you know, Democrat, Republican, it's not left, right, it's not Democrats versus Republican, it's all of us uh, coming together um, and defining uh, what this fight is about and it's autocracy versus democracy and it's zero sum. Uh, if democracy wins, democracy is, if autocracy wins, democracy is gonna die uh, or fail and, and that, that has massive consequences. You talked about, you know, your experiences in Iraq, right? Like a mutual friend of ours was one of the main people, you know, at the coalition provisional authority trying to build democracy in Iraq. And he comes out of Rick Santorum work on politics. You guys probably be very different. But truth of the matter is the people I worked closest with when I was at IRI were all Democrats. John McCain and Madeleine Albright could always be counted on to work together. And quite frankly, we've got a rally to do that here in the U.S., but that starts with rule one, which is playing the game we know. Right. Well, and that's the problem. I think still a lot of people are, are playing the two parties. We can find common ground game. And um, we've got to wake folks up wake, and wake corporate America up to what's really going on here. Yes, for sure. So rule two is always speak with the power because you never know where the tipping point is. Um, and speaking truth to power you know, comes oftentimes with consequences. You know, we've all, at least on the the Republican side of people who are doing stuff with the Lincoln Project, have lost friends over it. Um, But it's imperative that people get up each day and speak truth to power. And one of the things that on the Republican side and on the Democrat side, Um, needs to be kept in mind by elected officials is speaking truth to power means speaking the truth to those that are on the poles of the political spectrum. 
the left wing and the right wing of the party. And I don't know how it is on the Democrat side, but I know for more than a decade, when I would go home and my mother, who's the diehard Republican um, and semi-Trump favorable, would ask me to go to a Lincoln Day dinner, um, I would inevitably get approached because people knew I worked at senior levels of Republican politics. And oftentimes they'd say things to me that I knew wasn't true. And rather than confronting them, I would nod along and just be like, yeah, okay. And think there's no harm in this. Um, in hindsight, you know, now I engage them and say, you know what? Donald Trump did lose the election in Wisconsin. And sometimes people don't want to hear that. But probably a lot of times I don't want to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes my mom doesn't want to hear it. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, the one thing that's uh, along those lines is that the Democratic Party, I mean, to answer your question is like, they're look, all both parties uh, under normal circumstances have different wings, you know, pushing and shoving and trying to get, you know, more, uh, you know, more on an issue than than the status quo and the party wants and that kind of th- those kind of things. So it's a pretty normal. Um, and, you know, when you look at Joe Biden be, becoming the nominee, given all the different forces of Bernie and Kamala, everybody that was running, you know, uh, 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 you know, that were going Yang, uh, you know, people like like Yang that were out there, the Yang gang. That fight is still sort of it's it's it happens, but it's it's just not uh, the same thing that occurred on the Republican side. I mean, it's basically been you know overtaken. I mean, you see it at central committees and um, you know state and sort of purging Republicans of goodwill. Uh, you know, Cheney. Uh, you know the way they 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 pushed her out of leadership. Uh, this really is. A, a totally different thing, I think. It's an authoritarian movement that's taken a party over to such an extent that you're, you know, you're either, if you're playing the old game, this is what I think about Joe Manchin, you're you're either negotiating with members of the authoritarian, genuine card-carrying members of the authoritarian movement, Pete, the 147 who, who voted uh, to overturn the election against certifying all that stuff, uh, right after the insurrection, um, you know, who then say it was a tour, <laughs> it was tourism. And the only other people could possibly be trying to negotiate with are hostages of that movement. Um, they've literally, they may still be mayor, members of that party, uh, but they're, they're outnumbered and they, they're not speaking out. They're not going to talk, none of them, very few of them are speaking truth to power. I think we're down to two uh, in, the, in the House, uh, King, Adam Kinzinger and, and uh, Cheney. Uh, are, are the only two that seem willing to stand up and, and, and do that. And so I think that that I think it's sort of the thing you sort of have this Democratic Party that I think more and more is starting to realize we have to we have to find common ground with each other. I mean, different wings have to. Uh, and I think Biden helps pull that t- together. Uh, we'll see how how it all plays out. But they're but because of that, they're still stuck in this normalcy thing where, you know, like Joe, Joe Manchin wants to go uh, try to find 10 votes that he's never. You know, I just don't see how that happens. Uh, I wish it were so. But that's your whole point about rule one. <laughs> don't fight the one you wish you right. were in. Fight the one you, you know, fight the, the battle you're in and win it because it's, it's going to be zero sum in the end. What are some of the other rules? Rule three is don't hand 
the autocrats battering rams with which to beat you. And I was thinking as you're talking, and I don't know if Jacob Fry, the mayor of Minneapolis, listens to this podcast, but um, I probably share nothing politically in common with Jacob Fry, but he is a hero to me in the same way that Liz Cheney is for speaking truth to power on battering rams. Um, he has had this whole wing that is, we're going to abolish the police, defund the police in Minneapolis. Um, and he is speaking truth to power against that battering ram. Um, and in the same way that Liz Cheney is. And I get the sense for Fry, it's kind of a lonely place. But I'll tell you what, that, that that's somebody who's putting short-term political self-interest below what's right and what's in the best interest of the city. Yeah, um, and that was a battering, battering ram. Yeah, ram. that was a battering ram that the Republicans Huge. took uh, and, and uh, were able to use. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't matter what the explanation, you know, what it really means, any of that stuff. It's uh, the, the you know, they've worked forty years to build that apparatus uh, that you know and, and amplify it, and uh, and I think you know there's still a debate in the party, uh, but I uh, about you know you know about how. Uh, damaging that was, but I I thought it was pretty damaging. And, and well, I mean, it's classic. It's classic. You know, I talked about how people become political extremists, right? It's classic, cognitively simplistic answer to a real grievance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is a real grievance. If you're black in Minneapolis, you have legitimate beefs with how policing is done, but defunding and abolishing the police is no different than build the wall in Mexico. Will pay for it. Um, it, it's, it's pandering in a way that is really toxic and harmful, you know, to your point about what you're saying about the difference between Democrats and Republicans. Um, and you know that I talk about this. So I put together this PowerPoint that kind of took on a life of its own just for friends. And one of the points that I make in there is, um, the Republican party is a classic illiberal vertical. You have Donald Trump sitting on top a small cadre of enablers, an outrage complex, and probably the greatest thing that shows the difference between the Republican Party, which is classic illiberal vertical, versus the Democrats, which are a horizontal liberal power structure, is the fact that in the Republican Party, you know, people like Sean Hannity or Matt Schlapp or a lot of people like that are seen as leaders in the party in the same way that Dmitry Peskov is seen as a leader in Russia, right? because of close proximity to whoever the power is in Russia, Putin, and the Republican Party, Trump. On the Democrat side, Rachel Maddow or whoever would be similar, they're not seen as leaders in the Democrat Party. Are they voices? Of course. Right. But they're not, they're not, they don't have the stature of this is a leader of the movement. Laura Ingram, what power does Laura Ingram have? She's you know, and yet in some ways, she or Tucker are bigger deals than Mitch McConnell. Yeah. They hold more yeah, cards. They are. Right. That's classic illiberal. So the battering ram thing is critical. The next one is understand authoritarian, authoritarians have to live in a truth free present. Um, and what that means is, you know, authoritarians are their objective is straightforward. And it's the same for all of them. Gain and maintain power. Their strategy is always the same, using fear to create inevitability, invincibility. The past is problematic for, and we'll just use Trump, the past is problematic for Donald Trump 
because he has all kinds of actions that he's taken that if you talk about the past, <laughs> quite frankly, the past is problem for the Republican Party, right? Because yeah. that's why they don't, that's why Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to talk about one six. That's a problem. The future is uncertain inherently. And so it's all about living in the current moment. And to a, that, that rule is important because we have the ability to play the long game. We can play, remind people of the past. We can play in the moment. Um, and we can look to the future and be hammering away on that. And in fact, you know, uh, the Lincoln Project put out an ad today that I think has been seen by a million people because Comcast won't run it about Fox News and COVID uh, and the hypocrisy of it. Yeah. Right. They're now they're trying to live in the moment. They're all you need to get vaccinated. Right. That's classic. So we're running out of time here. Uh, and, okay. and, but. Um, uh, we're going to put all seven of the rules in the in the uh, in our notes, but I wanted you to to hit uh, 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 six, uh, the, yeah. the Stalin rule. And why do you call it the Stalin rule, by the way? So I call it the Stalin rule because um, I don't think you could come up with anybody more reprehensible. And somebody on Twitter went after me about using Stalin as the rule. And I said, you know, my wife's family had people who were deported from Lithuania to Siberia. So don't start in with me about not understanding what Joseph Stalin was like. The point of the Stalin rule is Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt shared nothing in common with Joseph Stalin other than they had to defeat fascism so that they could live another day to fight between capitalism and communism. They understood who Joseph Stalin was. They understood that that was going to be a long game but they had to stand together to confront the immediate threat. And, you know, I had the opportunity, which is something doing Republican politics I never thought I would do, to do a presentation for a bunch of bundlers on the Democrat side. And we got talking about Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And as I said to them, I don't care if you loathe her completely and her politics. Liz might loathe yours too, but you are together in this fight in the same way that Roosevelt and Churchill were in a fight. The fight with Stalin to defeat fascism. No, and that gets gets to one of the reasons I joined the Lincoln Project, because I think we've got to, you know, as you know, uh, I've been in some tough battles with uh, with you, with with Stuart, with with Steve, you know, with all of you, you know, everybody. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, we it, 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 although I think, I suspect, um, uh, we win this fight. Uh, there won't be any battles because I think uh, hopefully there'll be a, a, a retirement home somewhere for all of us. But um, but but it is. <laughs> if we lose, it's, it's going to be somewhere it, else. Yeah, yeah, the that's US. that's exactly. Well, either way, it'll be a retirement home. It's just it's just going to be where. <laughs> but um, uh, but it's why I joined the Lincoln Project and why I think it's so important to build this pro democracy coalition. Not just the Lincoln Project, but other groups out there. Get them to to join together. Um, and understand that we we there may be battles in the future, uh, but not if we lose this one. And that's pretty important, I think. And I I think I think you know one of the things that people in the audience should understand who are probably pretty partisan. Um, for people who do politics, we're pretty partisan too. But in truth, um, there's nothing more fun than working with people on the other side in the game that we get want to play the win-win game where you can slug it out in an honest fashion. And after the day, go have beers together and say, 
good job. Um, and we're all on the same team now. And yeah, you know, no, it's, it's a good place yeah, to be. No. And that's true. You know, both in Zimbabwe and, and Iraq, um, you know, those teams were, were Democrats, uh, conservative, uh, members of the conservative party from the UK, some really great political, uh, folks on the conservative side in, in uh, from Australia. I mean, it was like, you know, six or seven or eight people who, uh, we all love democracy. That's what we were, were fighting for uh, or trying to build in Iraq and fighting for in, in Zimbabwe. And now it's time, the Lincoln Project and this pro-democracy coalition that we're hoping to build uh, comes together like that here in the United States. I never thought I'd be saying those words, but we've got to stop this authoritarian movement. It cannot succeed. It cannot become the majority, either the House or the Senate. And it certainly cannot be allowed to seize the presidency in 2024. So um, thanks so much, Trigvi, for coming on today. You can follow Trigvi on Twitter at Trigvi, that's T-R-Y-G-V-E, Olson. Trigvi, anywhere else our listeners can follow your work? Is that the best place? You know, for right now, it's it's Twitter. We've got a bunch of stuff. I think you're aware of some of it that's going to be coming out over the fall and uh spring cool. um but for right now i'm i promise that i'll keep tweeting more i hope you'll keep retweeting me joe because you're fantastic for getting followers for me. And, i'm uh, trying man i'm trying i'm happy to come on we gotta spread the word <laughs> i'm happy to come on anytime uh look so. we'll link to your seven rules in the show notes uh uh and you know thanks everybody for listening to that trippy show we'll be back next week at the usual time as always please subscribe and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in the reviews on iTunes. We'll see you next Friday. Thanks again, Trigby. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.